So the very first thing you need to know about Jesus, what you have to understand about Jesus, is you have to know his teaching style. Jesus has a teaching style. When we read the Gospels, sometimes we open them up and we go, oh, this sounds like a perfectly chronological story, almost like Jesus was following a script. But that was put together later. First, there was his life. The story of Jesus, just like ours, is not a book yet. It's a book after. Somebody will write a book about us later. It sounds like Jesus went here, then he went there, and then he said this, and then he said that. It seems so smoothly laid out. What I like about the Gospel of Philip, these are some of the new texts we've been looking at that were discovered in 1945. It's much like the Gospel of Thomas that we looked at earlier this year. There's no narrative in the story. It's just a bunch of sayings gathered together, like the book of Proverbs. It doesn't seem to be or- orchestrated at all. There's no storyline It looks like a bunch of notes and highlights, kind of what you would expect from a student following a teacher. Scribble, scrabble, remember this for the test. (laughs) Jesus was a teacher who used aphorisms and parables that left the interpretation up to who? The listener. And Jesus might say something like this when he was done speaking. Let the hearer understand. Thanks, Jesus. He didn't clarify. He wanted us to think about it. And when he would teach, he would leave it up to the student to use their imagination to make sense of what Jesus taught. So maybe you've been like me and done this before. Maybe you decide to clean a room. You clean your office. and You you take it all apart. It seemed like such a good idea until it's 7 p.m. and dinner needs to be eaten and the kids are running around. It was a good idea at first, but now you've pulled everything apart. You bit off more than you can chew. Your bed is covered in everything. And you're sitting in a giant mess. And if Jesus walked by, he might say something like, hey, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. This is an example of an aphorism. And what might that mean? Let the hearer understand. Maybe you did need to redecorate. Or maybe you should have been doing what you're supposed to be doing, (laughs) being doing something else, and not making a mess out of something that didn't need to be fixed. There's a truth here. Jesus taught like this, and he'd have sayings like, You can't serve two masters. He didn't say all of this repetitively. He would say that and then, oh, who are the masters? What is he talking about? He might say another aphorism, if a blind person leads a blind person, both will fall into the ditch. Or one time he said, Uh, should we bury them? And Jesus said something sweet and nice. You would never want to hear this at a funeral. Go let the dead bury the dead. That's what Jesus would say at a funeral. That's not very nice. Or is there something deeper he's saying? This is the way that Jesus, our teacher, taught. 
And sometimes we look at the Bible and we think, oh, this overwhelming book, I can't read it all. I don't even, I, how, did, how do you study this? How do you remember anything? But the trick to the book is not trying to take it all in. The trick is to simply understand one of its many teachings, taking them one at a time. Like a math problem. You know, math is so vast, you don't sit down and go, oh, I understand all mathematics. There's no way you can understand all of mathematics. Instead, you're presented with just a single problem to work on, and you try to figure it out. Today, we're going to look at a book that actually sounds a lot like this, and that's the Gospel of Philip. It's the book I introduced last week, and you can check last week's message out on YouTube to catch up, but today, I think you'll see that just one teaching of Jesus, one of his sayings, can inspire you to consider the depth and the weight and the treasure that exists in all of his many little aphorisms and parables. So, here is a saying from the Gospel of Philip. Now, before I even read this, it is a miracle that we are reading this. This stuff was found in an ancient monastery. It's pretty incredible. But it was sayings and teachings attributed to Jesus before even the fourth century. This one might come from the third century. That's very early on. Some of the other, the Bible wasn't even put together at that time. So here's what it says. The rulers thought they had done everything alone. But in secret, the Holy Spirit on her own accomplished it all. I'll read another translation. Same thing now. The rulers, the rulers thought that it was by their own power and will that they did what they did. But the Holy Spirit was hiddenly accomplishing everything through them as she wished. Jesus has this view that there are spiritual rulers that do not act on behalf of the real God or on behalf of humanity's true good. These lower gods, these rulers, in Greek the word is archons, these archons instead believe that they are gods themselves. They are the rulers and masters of this created world. And so they work to keep human beings from knowing who God really is. When Philip tells us that Jesus taught this, we're getting a picture into Jesus' worldview. Jesus believes that God wants to connect to human beings and that human beings want to connect to God. But that there's someone standing in the way. That is, the rulers or the archons. To tie this into our traditional scripture, which I always do, let us read Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he uses the same exact terminology, saying, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the archons against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. 
the language is used again by Jesus himself in John 16, 11, where he says, the ruler of this world has been condemned. Pilate wasn't condemned. Pompey wasn't condemned. The priests and Sadducees weren't condemned. Herod wasn't condemned. Jesus is referring to the rulers in the spiritual realms, those who had used worldly institutions to keep people from finding a path to God. This activity is seen elsewhere in Scripture, right in the beginning. God makes human beings in Genesis, and everything is a garden. It's beautiful. Everything's going smoothly. Until who comes along? The serpent, right? And what does the serpent do? It suggests that human beings do what God told them not to do. Now, it sounds like a harmless story, right? And then a little bit of an overreaction by God. But let's not forget that these stories are just tales and myths trying to express something deeper to us, like a parable, like an aphorism. Like math problems, and I used to hate math problems because they always go like this. This train is going 40 miles per hour, and the wind is blowing 50 miles per hour, and that makes the train really do 39 miles per hour. You hate these, right? I hate these. Okay? So, you know, if it's supposed to be a two, what time does it arrive uh, for real? You know, I hated these. Somebody online is going to answer that, that problem. I hated these problems because it sounds so confusing. But once you get that the words are just background, to give a narrative to the numbers. Then you can decipher the real problem. You can read the first few chapters of Genesis and get lost in the fact that there's talking serpents, talking snakes. God seems to be a little unforgiving. And human beings are just this kind of lost and helpless creature. But again, the trick is to see that these are just stories that the ancient people used to transmit deep spiritual truths to one another. Genesis itself is just giving us a metaphor, a parable of how human beings seem to be caught between two forces. We've all experienced this phenomenon. No need to prove it. Just trust your experience. If you break it down into the simplest form, you can even remove all the symbols and extract the essence. There is a force, the text uses the word ruler, who wants to do good. And there is a force, a ruler, who wants to lead us away from the good. Valentinian Christianity, the type of Christianity I've been presenting to you this year, which lines up with my psychoanalytic training, Young and other people actually said psychoanalysis was being practiced 2,000 years ago by these guys. <laughs> but it's a form of Christianity that existed pre-Orthodoxy. They believed that this world was not under the influence of the great God we all thought we were worshiping. Jesus, in fact, showed up and said, don't worship God in the temple And don't worship God on that mountain. Jesus pulled people away from these false systems to lead them to the truest form of God we can know. 
And this form is found in the Holy Spirit. You see, it was the lower spiritual rulers of this world that led people to create religious institutions around sin, fear, guilt, and shame. It was the lower spiritual rulers of this world that created sacrificial systems of blood atonement for our failures. It was the lower spiritual rulers of this world that created class systems. And they, in fact, were the ones who created the very laws that said God favored some and excluded others. Psychologically speaking, one could say that this is the primitive collective unconscious that continues to haunt humanity. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see this at work. That's why it's so hard for a lot of younger people to read the Bible and take it seriously. You would think, oh, I'm going to open up the Bible. It's going to be a holy book. And I'm going to find a God full of mercy and grace. But instead, you read the story about an angry God who's so intolerant of failure that he must be appeased or else. This understanding of God has unfortunately been adopted by most of mainstream Christianity. There's a famous Christian sermon revered in every seminary that's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached right here in Enfield, Connecticut by Jonathan Edwards. And this is what it taught, that God was so angry with human beings that they better change their ways or God's going to throw them into a fiery pit of hell. It was a call for an urgent repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A forgiveness that wasn't free, of course. It was paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because God couldn't hold back. He was so angry. He had to punch something. He had to release that anger. He had to destroy someone. He seems a bit out of control. <laughs> and instead of destroying humanity, what we're asking our kids to accept is that God killed the, only, the son he loved so much. covering us in blood, of course. The Gospel of Philip and early Valentinian Christianity did not teach this. They taught that this was what the rulers of the world had set up. And if that sounds far-fetched, like Sean, is this, where are you getting this from? Let me read a passage to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 6 through 8. Sometimes we may read the text, but because we don't understand these terms, they don't pop out. But listen to this. Now that we know what rulers are, Paul writes, We, Christians, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Who are coming to nothing. 
No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery, a secret. This is Paul. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Let the hearer understand that. And so not to be outdone, the true God who sent the Holy Spirit had also been at work, working in secret, speaking in parables and aphorisms right under the noses of the rulers, trying to get the attention of humanity by tapping into their creative and imaginative intellect. And Philip writes, the rulers thought they had done everything alone. They thought they had established a religion of fear and shame to control human behavior. We can get a little out of control, right? They did it not just for bad, but just to control human behavior. But the text says, it says, but in secret, the whole time, the Holy Spirit was working on her own and accomplished everything. From the same passage I read earlier, the one that says the ruler of this world has been condemned from John chapter 16, Jesus says, uh, continues saying, I still have many things to tell you. We thought the story was over. Jesus says at the end of his life, I have so many things to tell you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, she will guide you into all truth. She will uh, not speak on her own, but will speak whatever she hears. And she will declare to you the things that are to come. You see, throughout the stories of old, within the religious teachings themselves, the teachings of the rulers, the Holy Spirit was writing a whole different story. And when we read in the text passages about one coming who will teach us something real, something spiritual, something meaningful, one who will teach us that God is not an angry ruler, but one who will teach us that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And most important, That we're not just evil creatures, like it says in Genesis chapter 6, in which nothing good can come. In between the lines of this false rhetoric, the biblical story begins to reveal another thread. It begins to tell us about one who will come and decipher the parables and riddles of old. And now we can see what Philip was saying that Jesus taught him. The rulers thought they had done everything alone, but in secret, the Holy Spirit on her own accomplished it all. Ironically, that famous passage where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me takes place between two disciples 
who are attributed to writing these texts that I just started reading for us this year. These books that are now shedding more light on Jesus and represent, to me, a fuller picture, which makes it clearer. Guess what the two disciples are? When Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Thomas and Philip. <laughs> the biggest struggle the disciples had with Jesus, what everybody was having a hard time with Jesus, was that it seemed like he was dismantling and deconstructing religion. They thought he was taking everything they knew about God away. What Jesus was teaching them was that everything they knew about God was not from God. But it had been clouded by what the, the rulers, the archons, had mixed in, which is exactly what Paul said. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I remember this passage. This was, I got a cassette tape on memory scriptures and this i was singing it to my wife the other day it sounds so richard marx it's very old um but it says for our i'm not going to sing it actually <laughs> but it's for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers the powers the authorities the principalities that's what the scripture says against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that in a realm we do not yet see, humanity has been deceived, just as we had been deceived in the garden. In that story, it says, in the beginning. But the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John start how? In the beginning. A new beginning. A new story is going to be told in the middle. It says in the beginning there was the word, but that Jesus was also there. How does that make sense? The Holy Spirit was there in the beginning, but we're just finding out about her in the middle. <laughs> there were rulers in the beginning who would set the world in motion and sought to shape it as they wished. But secretly, Philip says, there was another actor with them in the beginning as well. She was in the beginning. And when the time was just right, and Philip says this later in, the, in this gospel, she would give birth to a son. And they'll call him peace, redeemer, Messiah, Emmanuel, God, finally is with us. <laughs> this has been a deep dive into the theology of Jesus, but don't let it confuse you like a math problem. Simply put, here's the, the simply put version. There was an archaic system of religion in the world that professed to be the way, the truth, and the life. But in fact, it was not the way. It was not the truth. And it was death. This is why Jesus took the name of that old system, and this is when they wanted to get rid of him. And he says, he says, that was the way. And he took on the name. I am the way. 
This is why he told Philip, look at me, Philip. You keep looking for God. Look at me. That's what he said to Philip. When you look at me, Phil, you see the Father. He's right in front of you. When that woman committed adultery, what did the law of the ruler say? Stone her. When Jesus opened the blind, eyes of the blind, and healed the sick, what did the ruler say? Well, what day is it? Oh, it's Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. When Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman and showed her the way to God, did it matter what religion she was or where she was born? Jesus said, Philip, John 1, it says this, Moses never saw God. But you, Philip, are staring into his face. Jesus' finger doesn't write laws doesn't point out the speck of dust in your eye. It points you to the truth. And what is the truth? What can we walk away with today knowing absolutely to be true about God? And what can keep us from the ongoing deception of these rulers, these archons, these wicked rulers in the heavenly places? It just so happens to be. I remembered the, the verse, and I laughed when I found out which book it was in. Philippians, of course. And if you ever want to know what God is truly like, if you're ever confused by what you read or hear about God in a church or in a book, you can lean on this passage, and it will always guide you to the true north. Paul finishes his letter to those Philippians with the same advice I'm going to give you all today. He says, summing it up all for you, my friends, let me sum up this whole thing, Christianity, to you. I'd say you'll, be, you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on true things, on noble things, reputable things, authenticity, not the ugly. Things to praise, not to curse. That's a simple religion for me. <laughs> this is what Jesus taught. And you don't need a book to tell you that. You know it, right? You know. My kids, whenever they do the wrong thing, I say, you know. Do you know? And they go, I know. <laughs> they know what's right. So while we may not believe in spirits and demons, there surely is something going on behind this magical thing called life. And so, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, just as he taught, hold on to what you do know. Hold on to what is true. Hold on to what is good. And when we leave this world that we do know, we will be ready and prepared enter into the world we knew existed somewhere deep within us and oh what a surprise 